Welcome to the BCP and Me, the podcast that explores the Book of Common Prayer as a manual for living out our lives. My name is Father Tyler Richards, and we are joined here today with Father Joshua Nelson as we continue our journey through the Book of Common Prayer. Good afternoon, Father Joshua. Good afternoon, Father Tyler. This is kind of a momentous moment, isn't it? Well, never mind that we are now producing our 26th episode of the BCP and me, um, 26th episode over three seasons, which is hard to believe in and of itself, but momentous in the sense that we are now entering into a new section of the prayer book. And holy cow, it's the big one. Yeah. Holy Eucharist, the liturgy for the proclamation of the word of God and the celebration of Holy Communion, which is the second largest section of the prayer book, by the way. Only surpassed by the Psalms, which we'll get to on a later episode. Which Join somebody got here. So. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so, gosh, uh, where to begin with the Eucharist? Um, probably on page 315 is a good place to begin. Well, uh, when you uh, start at the very beginning, because it's a very good place to start, you read, you begin with ABC, and when you start with the Eucharist, you begin on page 315, 316 of the Book of Common Prayer. So you start with ABC, but you really begin on 315? Yeah, okay, yeah. I, I see what you're doing there. Yeah, yeah. What do you do with a problem like Maria? Um, but in any case... Um, so, um, when the 1979 Book of Common Prayer was being written and was being um, put together, a little event had happened inside of the Catholic Church, and by the Catholic Church, I mean the Roman Catholic Church. Really little event, really little. little minor thing, probably was just a blip in the history of the church called Vatican II. wee 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 and um, in Vatican II, one of the things that they re-emphasized was the importance of the celebration of the Holy Eucharist, as well as the meaningful participation of the laity within the Eucharist itself. Um, before then, you had a service that was very clergy-centric, um, and uh, lots of times was still being done in Latin. And so what you get in Vatican II is a, an emphasis that the that the mass be celebrated in a language that most of the people could understand because Latin had long since be ceased being the lingua franca. Um, and so anytime Rome sneezes, we catch a cold. And what that is to say is, that is a quote from Dr. Jim Terrell from uh, the School of Theology at the University of the South. Hi, Dean Terrell, I hope you're listening. Um, and so what that means for us is that from the prayer book of 1928, which was primarily a prayer book that was focused on the office of morning prayer, which we've already talked about, go back to the first season and listen to, um, listen to that season if you haven't already, but it moves us away from the daily office as the principal act of Christian worship, and it re-emphasizes the celebration of the Holy Eucharist as the principal act of worship for, for the Episcopal Church. And so what you have here is a, a emphasis in the 1979 Book of Common Prayer 
on the celebration of the Holy Eucharist. Yeah, so uh, at that point, when we reemphasize the Eucharist, whereas in the early days and much of the history of the Episcopal Church, you know, being since the late 18th century after the American Revolution, um, we had morning prayer. A lot of this was out of necessity, right? Because there weren't enough priests to go around. We're kind of falling into that position again in our history, but uh, as the Eucharist can only be celebrated by a member of the College of Presbyters, which includes bishops at that point, um, then you have to have a priest and somebody else in order to have the Eucharist. Um, now, in Roman Catholic tradition, the priest can have, say, private mass. So just by themselves. In the Episcopal tradition, we cannot do that. Um, you, you could have at least one other person in order to have a valid celebration of the Eucharist. But post-Vatican II, then, every Sunday becomes a, a feast of the Eucharist, whereas before it was maybe once a quarter, once a month, things like that. And the rest of the time, your Sunday service, primary Sunday service, was morning prayer. So now here we, we come to doing this every week. And um, you know, there was a lot of pushback from a lot of people who really enjoyed morning prayer and just receiving every once in a while. And that was kind of bred into them. And, and many of that generation are still with us. They are quickly dying. <laughs> As Father Tyler can attest, we've been doing lots of funerals. Um, but that is something that was ingrained within them. There are still people who, even though every Sunday is a celebration, we do a celebration of the Eucharist, will only receive, come up and partake maybe once a month. There are those that, that do that. There was also this, this longing for um, the language of their childhood. And the 1926 Book of Common Prayer was written in kind of a, you know, the, the King's English, uh, following the King James Version of Holy Scripture, um, literarily speaking. And with this push for the vernacular from Vatican II, we also did that and kind of updated the language. But our Eucharistic prayers include two forms or two rites. There is rite one, which is looking back and kind of touching on that earlier language. It is not a copy of the 1926 prayer book. It is not ripped from those pages, but it has that sense about it. It's kind of a middle ground. And then there is right two, which was meant to always to be kind of, this is what we're moving toward um, in the prayer book after 1979. And that's what most of us um, are used to and, and hear on a regular basis now, or say on a regular basis now. So we're going to be kind of touching on different things within this episode, uh, but looking primarily at right two as it relates um, in language to the prayers of the Eucharist. I want to take us back just a couple of minutes to talk about 
uh, one thing for our religious scholar friends that are listening to this and going, but Father Joshua, Father Tyler, there was a lot more going on inside of Vatican II than just the meaningful inclusion of the laity and the Eucharist and the the importance of the celebration of the Holy Eucharist as a principal act of Christian worship. Yes, we agree. But for our purposes inside of the Episcopal Church, those two parts of Vatican II have had such far-reaching consequences on the way that we do worship and arguably the way that the Western Christian world does worship, that that is what we're focused on with, with that movement. We understand there's a lot of moving pieces between Vatican I and Vatican II. Those are the two things that we're pulling out to highlight as a way that the ecumenical world has affected the way that we do worship in the Episcopal Church. Especially concerning this right of the, the sacrament of the Eucharist. Correct. So for those of you playing along at, in, on the home game, uh, as we like to say, uh, let us open our red leather bound books of common prayer or red paper bound books of common prayer or whatever color your book of common prayer is and find our way to page 316. And because all books of common prayer have standard page numbers, you will find there on page 316 a little document called an exhortation. You're the one that, no, 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 no. You're the one that has the degree in language arts. What is an exhortation, Father Tyler? Well, if we're just going to talk about a simple definition of a word, then I'm happy to I'm happy to interject here. Exhort is a word that just means an encouragement, a uh, a reminder to sort of uh, call us back to a, a point that is very important. So when you exhort someone, you are encouraging them, you are reminding them. And uh, in some cases, especially in this one, you're doing a little bit of backhanded instruction about something that is going on. Very good definition. Thank you. <laughs> You're quite welcome. One is glad to be of service. And this is not something that we hear regularly in, in most of our congregations. So it's something that's really good for us to take the time now to dive into. It is, it is not something that is part of our regular worship, which may have caused, we did touch briefly in the last episode of some of the things that have caused issues in the church. But because the exhortation isn't heard regularly in the church, it may have caused or contributed to some of those same problems that we were talking about on the last episode. But uh, the rubric for the exhortation reads, this exhortation may be used in whole or in part, either during the liturgy or at other times. In the absence of a deacon or priest, this exhortation may be read by a layperson. The people stand or sit. The way this is typically introduced is that you do this at the beginning of a service on a Sunday morning. Lots of times you hear it used during the season of Lent, although arguably it should be done at least once a month, mm -hmm. um, and is, is used to sort of remind the people of everything that is happening inside of the Eucharist. Um, the exhortation the way that it's placed inside of the Book of Common Prayer, um, the way that it is structured, acts as sort of a prologue of everything that is about to come to pass. 
and how how would you like to break this apart, Father Tyler? Should we go through it all and then break it down, or uh, go paragraph by paragraph? Oh, I think we had better had do it paragraph by paragraph. There's plenty in there. So Sophie has spoken. So let us begin. This is again page three hundred and sixteen. This is the first paragraph of an exhortation. Beloved in the Lord, our Savior Christ, on the night before he suffered, instituted the sacrament of his body and blood as a sign and pledge of his love. For the continual remembrance of the sacrifice of his death and for a spiritual sharing in his risen life. For in these holy mysteries, we are made one with Christ and Christ with us. We are made one body in him and members one of another. So that's self-explanatory. We can just move on to the next portion, right? <laughs> well, some of the language in here should sound familiar, right? We, uh, if you listen or follow along in your bulletin or your Book of Common Prayer during the Eucharistic prayer, uh, this our Savior Christ on the night before he suffered instituted the sacrament of his body and blood. This in some form, appears within the Eucharistic prayers. This is what we are beginning or preparing to do. Well, and, if we, and if, we, if, we, if we turn back just a little bit in, in our prayer book, back to just to baptism, we are this is everything. These are a lot of the major themes that are picked up by baptism, picked up by the baptismal rite, um, and is pointing us back to that. Um, for those of you who may not be as familiar with the Christian tradition, on the night before Jesus suffered, we have what is typically called Maundy Thursday. If you're curious about that whole rite, I would reference you back to one, to our previous season when we talk about Holy Week, we talk about Maundy Thursday. Um, but Jesus institutes the sacrament of his body and blood, which we now commonly refer to as the institution of the Holy Eucharist as a sign and a pledge of his love for the continual remembrance of the sacrifice of his death in the Eucharist. We do have the words, do this in remembrance of me and for spiritual sharing in his risen life. The Eucharist also unites us when we are partakers of the Eucharist, when we come to the table seeking to receive the sacrament we are actually sharing in the risen life of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Um, and, and this is also why it has the also familiar name, not just the Eucharist, but Holy Communion. Correct. Uh, communion being that point where we come in contact with God, God's self. This is, this is quite possibly the most holiest moment inside of worship, inside of Christianity, because we have asked God to take this bread and this wine and to transform it so that it bears Jesus Christ unto us. So this is actually really heavy, really sacred, important things that we are doing here. It's not just a simple memorial. Um, whether you be transubstantiationist, consubstantiationist, or no substantiationism at all, in the Episcopal Church, we affirm the present, the, the doctrine of the real presence which means that the bread and the wine maintain their original form, but Christ is present in them. So this is powerful stuff. 
and in the Episcopal Church, we confirm that this is a mystery, a holy mystery, and therefore we don't try to explain it away. Oh, uh, you try as you like. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I'm saying it is a holy mystery and it is something that is continually in, perpe- in perpetuity revealed to us. Correct. Things are revealed to us in the mystery of the sacrament. And as we all know, mystery comes from the Greek word mysterion, which means mystery. So having cleared that up, uh, we move on to the next couple of sentences. For in these holy mysteries, well done, Father Joshua, full marks, we are made one with Christ and Christ with us. We are made one body in him and members of one another. So in the reception of of communion, in the reception of the Holy Eucharist, this is more than just coming up and getting our, our wine and bread. We are, we are uh, signifying by our participation in the Holy Eucharist that we're ready to sign on being made one with Christ and that we're ready to sign on with Christ being made one with us and that we are signing on that we are being made one body in him. And also we're signifying that we are ready to be members of this community called the church, which is offering this communication with God to us. We are signifying that we are members one of another. I think that's the hardest part of this, right? Some because of the mystery. Because of the mystery, it is sometimes easier for us to say, yes, I have received the the blessed sacrament, the bread and the wine, the body and the blood of Christ. Therefore, uh, I am one with Christ and Christ is within me. Great theological point, all fluffy and wonderful. Then we have the brass taps, which is, and members one of another, that in sharing this meal together, we are all members of the body of Christ and equal to each other and caring for each other. We become one person, one family, one body. Well, and this is the great I am the walrus point in in Christian teaching where I am in Christ and Christ is in me and I am in you and you are in me and I am the Eggman, you are the walrus, cuckoo-cuckoo-choo. You know, we're, we're being brought into one body with one another, but also with God. It is that it is that mystical collision between heaven and earth where all of these things are being made one and being put under subjection of the Christ. Holy Communion, Holy Eucharist smacks in the face of Christian individualism, which is well, oxymoronic in itself. And and it's it's also this is one of the features of the seventy nine book is that it the seventy nine book offers sort of a subversive criticism of the twenty eight book and that the twenty eight book was very vertical. It was very much you come in, you say your prayers, you do your prayers, and then you go. Mm-hmm. It was very much you were all doing the same thing, but at the same time in the same place. The 28 or the 79 book has this feature where it's very clear that everything that we do, we do as a single body. And so you do get the vertical aspect of it, but you're also reminded of the horizontal aspect. That means that you are all worshiping Christ together as one body. And so it moves away from this idea of Christian individualism and draws us into a deeper communal understanding of the faith, which is, in fact, the original understanding of our faith. 
Yes. This is, this is you know, the, the Acts church, as some will say. Correct. So uh, before we go any deeper there, let's move on to the next paragraph. <laughs> Having in mind, therefore, his great love for us and in obedience to his command, his church renders to Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, never-ending thanks for the creation of the world, for his continual providence over us, for his love of all mankind, and for the redemption of the world by our Savior Christ, who took upon himself our flesh and humbled himself even to death on the cross, that he might make us the children of God by the power of the Holy Spirit and exalt us to everlasting life. And again, that's all. <laughs> so this is, this is our praise and worship bit, right? Having in mind, therefore, his great love for us and in obedience to his command, in ch his church renders to Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, never-ending thanks for the creation of the world, etc., etc., etc. And this is the this is the great setup for us to even talk about the word Eucharist. Yes. And you know, it's such a word that in the Episcopal Church we throw around. Well, are you going to the Eucharist? Well, they're having Eucharist. Is there Eucharist today? You know, is everybody ready for Eucharist? And we just talk about this word like it's common parlance. When I came into the Episcopal Church and they said we were celebrating Holy Eucharist, I'm like, what kind of party is that? Yeah, I don't know anything. Who is Eucharist and why are we celebrating her? Um, <laughs> she doesn't even go here. But in any case, um, what I come, what I came to find out is that Eucharist comes from the great Greek word Eucharistia, which literally means thanksgiving so the act of the holy eucharist is actually the holy thanksgiving now not that we have the turkey and the dressing and the cranberry sauce on the altar with the bread and the wine although there might be places where that's okay but rather it is in this act that we are heaping up to god all of the thanksgiving for the grace that god has given to us in fact, our never-ending thanks. Our never-ending thanks. And as I said, this is the, the portion that those outside the liturgical community would, would see as praise and worship. We, mm -hmm. we, we begin with praise and worship, giving thanks to Almighty God. And we'll see that again once we dive deeper into the actual liturgy of the Word um, as part of the Eucharist. But if the question ever comes up, what is it that we're supposed to be thankful to God? Well, we have a list. It's one of the great things about having a prayer book is that you often have lists of things that you can be thankful for. For the creation of the world, full stop. For his continual providence over us, that God continues to watch over us, that God continues to bless us and to guide us and give God's grace to us. For his love of all mankind, do not at me. This is classical language that you have here. We used to refer to all human beings as the race of man. I understand that is gendered language. What it's referring to here is all of humanity. But this particular exhortation was written in a older version of the language before we had moved to language that was more uh, gender neutral. And so well, and you will find you will find in the English etymology that actually 
the in, inclusion of man and woman, the, the distinction between man and woman is newer Correct. than everybody just being man, mankind. It Correct. meant everybody. So for his love for all, for everybody, God's love for everybody, and for the redemption of the world by our Savior Christ, who took upon himself our flesh and humbled himself even to death on the cross, that he might make us the children of God by the power of the Holy Spirit and exalt us to everlasting life. Yes, that last line is an entire self-contained phrase. One, Yeah, and so in other words, what do we have to give thanks to God for? Everything. 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 And you'll see that that will mirror the Psalms as well. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, and so even in, even in this Thanksgiving, we are lifting up the sacrifice, the incarnate ministry of Jesus Christ as, as incarnate God that, that was willing to give himself over to the power of death on the cross so that we can come into full communion with God. So that yeah. we can that we will have the power to call ourselves the children of God. Yeah, the, the Eucharist is simultaneously an offering of praise and thanksgiving and a recognition of sacrifice. So there's a little bit going on here. A little bit going on here. So our, our next paragraph, this is the third paragraph on 316. But if we are to share rightly in the celebration of those holy mysteries and be nourished by the spiritual food, we must remember the dignity of that holy sacrament. I therefore call upon you to consider how St. Paul exhorts all persons to prepare themselves carefully before eating of that bread and drinking of that cup. So. This is the so this is the this is the part inside of the exhortation that actually begins the exhortation. The first two paragraphs are actually prefaces to the actual exhortation itself. It is setting you up. It is it is sort of the rising action inside of this text that is leading you to this point. That it's it's important for you to know what it is that we're about in Christianity, why it is that we gather for this, why we gather together for this meal, for this um, for this sacrament, and this is where the exhortation, the encouragement, might even go as far to say as the warning begins. Yes. Yeah, I was going to say it is a warning, and this is where we say. This is why we don't take the sacrament lightly. This is why we don't just offer communion as freely as some would like. We have been exhorted by St. Paul to take it seriously. And the part that really bakes people's noodles is that the letters of Paul actually date earlier than the Gospels in most yeah. cases. And so when we, when we read from St. Paul, what we're actually seeing is normative Christian practice being played out inside of the ancient world before the gospels are written. So I'll give in you individual just, in individual congregations on the in, ground in churches in church houses. So I'll give you a moment to pick your brain up off of the carpet or out of the floorboard of your car or wherever it is that you're listening. That Saint Paul actually predates the gospels, um, and is 
is meant to give us that image into what normative Christian practice was during the early church. And we see in those texts that baptism was one of the first things, was the first thing that you did coming into the church. And 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 it's important here, and Father Tyler just took his glasses off, which means that I'm going to go on about it for a minute. It's important thing to remember here is that the early Christian church, after about 72, was this underground organization of which it was a very dangerous thing to be a part of, because the Roman Empire did not tolerate superstitions at all, and that is what they had labeled Christianity. And so you didn't just hand out Eucharist left and right to everybody who walked in the door and say, oh, are we doing Eucharist today? Because you could be unwittingly exposing your entire community to prosecution, to execution by the Roman Empire. And and so, you know, that's the other reason why we take communion so seriously is because a lot of people died in the name of this celebration, that's important. But also it is inside of this celebration that we actually come into contact with the one who makes us one. And it's not just some, it's not just snack time with Jesus. Yeah. Um, so St. Paul exhorts, it's interesting that we have the word exhorts inside of the exhortation, for us to take a look at ourselves, to examine our souls, and to make sure that we are really ready to sign on for everything that the reception of this sacrament asks us to sign, asks us to sign on for. Yes. And, and here's the kicker. Not everybody's ready for that. And that's okay. Yeah, and, and this is why there are some that take it so seriously that they will not receive every Sunday. Or they, because of different things, they've come to gather in the congregation to hear the word of God, but not necessarily receive the sacrament of the body and the blood out of respect for the sacrament and for what it means um, in our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. Even even if you aren't a transubstantiationist, which I'm not suggesting that that Father Joshua and I are both transubstantiationists, um, we believe that the real presence of God exists inside of the Eucharist. That's something that we hold to be true, and and that that is actually contained inside of the Catechism of the Episcopal Church. You're you're participating in 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 encountering God in this sacrament. And what St. Paul is writing about, what the exhortation is exhorting us to, is to make sure that we've taken stock of everything that is going on inside of us, our relationship with God and our relationship with neighbor, so that we can be as in ready of a state that we can possibly be in order to receive this gift. And to precurse the, the next section, um, piggybacking on that, that you, um, the real presence, we believe in the real presence of God, of Christ, in the bread and the wine, in the sacrament, when it is blessed. We also believe that every human being 
bears the image of God. So if you come to the sacrament with that kind of respect that it is due, shouldn't you also come to your neighbor with that same respect as being tabernacle for God, as being the imago dei? It changed Eucharistic understanding and participation should not just change how we participate in our worship in the nave, at the pew, and at the altar. It should change how we perceive all of our neighbors, all of creation and mankind, and how we interact with them in a new and sacred way. Amen. Amen. The exhortation continues, for as the benefit is great, if with penitent hearts and living faith we receive the holy sacrament, so is the danger great if we receive it improperly, not recognizing the Lord's body. Judge yourselves, therefore, lest you be judged by the Lord. Dun, dun, dun. I mean, it's really heavy language here. Yeah. And it should be. You need to understand that when you come before God, that you are coming before God with a clean conscience, with a clean heart, and that you are taking stock of, of your penance, you're taking stock of your life and offering penance, offering repentance where it needs to be. Um, and, and this is not because uh, I can already hear it now. If you read this language, you can perceive it as almost Indiana Jones and the Lost Ark, right? That it's almost this idea of that scene where the Nazis open the box and open the Ark of the Covenant and the power of God overwhelms them and you know, they, their skin is ripped away, all that jazz. Their faces melt off uh, and they explode. Their faces like, melt off. Like, the day, uh, like, like should happen to all Nazis. I was going to say, like all Nazis do, they just their faces <laughs> melt off and they explode. So, um, it is not to say that it is like that, but that the benefit is so great that um, the blessing of this is so important and so heavy and so great that we come to it differently. This is the fear of God, not boogeyman, I'm afraid of you, but the awe and reverence for the being, person, and spirit of God. And it's, it's, also, it's also asking us to adopt the attitude of reverence as we come to the table. You know, yeah. the, the phrase not recognizing the Lord's body understanding that what you're receiving is in fact a tremendous gift that is offered to you by God. And by you coming forward, you are signaling your assent to all of these ideas and that you are saying by reaching out your hands, you're reaching out and saying, you know, my Lord and my God, you are signaling, you are signaling your readiness to receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ your savior this is is god this is god saying i give myself to you to to you yes this is this is a moment when it's okay i think to sort of dive into a little bit of individualism not whole hog perhaps but 
to say that this is God's not, not individual, not individualism, intimacy. Fair enough. Intimacy. Fair enough. That that God is coming to us as an individual. We're having that that individual encounter with God in that moment, still being a part of the entire body, but you're having this intimate moment with with God. Um, so, like we said, not too much going on inside of the Eucharist, but if you thought that the Eucharist was a safe space, well, in the words of Indiana Jones, a penitent man will pass. So that's kind of what we're coming to is the fact that as we're approaching the seat of mercy, as we're approaching the altar of God, it is best to do that with penitent and repentant hearts. And this is something that we'll talk about once we get into the actual structure of the celebration of the Holy Eucharist is paying attention to how things are structured inside of the service mm-hmm. and who participates in what. There's a reason that we repent of our sins before we receive the Holy Communion. And we'll talk about that later, but I am waving at that now, Father Joshua, just so that we can get that, just slide that up there on the table for us to consider. And and this is also why we think it's so important that we baptize and catechize before the reception of the Holy Communion, of the sacrament. Again, it is not gatekeeping. It is good pastoral care. It It is is making... It is protection. It is making sure that the people who come forward know what they're getting into. And I can already hear the den of humanity crying out who listens to our podcast. Nobody understands what the Eucharist is. Maybe not in full. It's a mystery. There's no way we can plumb the depths and the heights and the width of everything that the Eucharist is. But we at least understand parts of it. We understand the significance of it as a Christian community, and it's important that the people that we bring to the table are given the chance to assent to those ideas, be told what those ideas are before they signal that they are ready to take on the full weight of the Eucharist for themselves. Let us continue. The next paragraph, this is now the top of page 317. Examine your lives and conduct by the rule of God's commandments, that you may perceive wherein you have offended in what you have done or left undone, whether in thought, word, or deed, and acknowledge your sins before Almighty God with full purpose of amendment of life, being ready to make restitution for all injuries and wrongs done by you to others and also being ready to forgive those who have offended you in order that you yourselves may be forgiven. And then being reconciled with one another, come to the banquet of that most heavenly food. There's nothing there. I mean, you could almost just insert the dramatic pause here and just wait for everybody to become uncomfortable and go, oh, wait. <laughs> there's there's one of these things that gets kicked around among those of us who hear confession, and it's the important thing that actually makes for a good confession, actually makes for a valid confession. 
and that in order for us to offer absolution to anyone who comes to us in confession, one of the things that has to be present is contrition and an intent for an amendment of life. If those two things aren't present, you're not actually making a confession. You're just bragging to somebody else that you've done something. And in, in order to get there, you have to do self-examination. Correct. It's not just saying, okay, where's my report card? It's saying, oh, here, here's what I have done. Here's what I have left undone. And if you practice any kind of Ignatian spirituality, uh, you may recognize this as there's um, rites and prayers for self-examination at the end of a day. It's kind of a bedtime routine. And this kind of takes us back to the daily office. But in doing that, Every day you are preparing yourself. This is also why, and I know this this is just kind of how things are on the ground. I recognize that. But prior to service, prior to the service of worship, the liturgy of worship and the word and the table, come in reverently. Take time to sit in the pew quietly, to Practice self-examination and prayer and bringing your contrition to God instead of, oh, I haven't seen you in forever. You know, you that's fine. Do that outside. When you come in, be prepared for what is about to happen, which is going to be the celebration of the Holy Eucharist and the receiving of the sacrament. You can talk about the Packers game at coffee hour. You can talk about the Alabama game while you're chomping on a donut. And the Packers game probably, you know, you probably have a lot to confess. Well, I was about to say, and if you're an Alabama football fan, there is a particular, you know, there's a particular need to recognize that at times we're obnoxious and we and, need and, and, and symptoms of idolatry, symptoms of idolatry. You know, I can only say this because I am very far from any Alabama fan at the moment. Present I'm company included. In okay. um, <laughs> um, but in, in this portion of the exhortation, you know, is given a guide for yeah. things that, that it, it's almost like a checklist, you know, uh, to, to, to examine your lives and conduct so that you may perceive wherein you have offended and what you have done or left undone, whether in thought, word, or deed. Acknowledge your sins before God with amendment of life, being ready to make restitutions of injuries and wrongs, being ready to forgive those who have offended you, being reconciled with one another. These are the things that you have to do. It's not just, it's not just God forgive me for my sins. It's also God forgive me for my sins. Hey, Jeff, you remember that time that I told you that, you know, your mailbox was painted in that ugly University of Tennessee orange. I'm really sorry for that. I know that may have driven a wedge between us or, you know, being able to make restitution or the attempt to make restitution where you can. We're going to talk about some of the things that come up inside of the Decalogue, which we're getting to slowly. Um, some of the things that it's impossible to make full restitution for. But restitution is all about is also about offering ourselves to other people in the hopes that we can at least try and make a right re-beginning with those people. Yeah, um, and that's contrition. And it, it's contrition, but it's also humility. 
of being able yeah. to say, I have wronged you and I was wrong for wronging you and asking for that forgiveness. And those faithful Christians who have been wronged, who are also doing the same thing that you're doing, should have the presence of mind within themselves to say, of course, I forgive you in as far as in as far as I can possibly forgive you for that. Yeah. And let's try and 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 walk together again and then come together to the banquet of that most heavenly food. You're sitting at the table together. Come on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and it's a long table. Yeah. So moving on to the next portion of the exhortation, which is one of my favorite parts of the exhortation. And if in your preparation, you need help and counsel, then go and open your grief to a discreet and understanding priest and confess your sins that you may receive the benefit of absolution and spiritual counsel and advice to the removal of scruple and doubt, the assurance of pardon and the strengthening of your faith. The Episcopal Church practices oral private confession. What? Put your car back on the road. <laughs> Pick up your dentures off of the floor. Maybe we should start having this with a warning. If you are listening to this podcast while on the highway, please turn on your hazards. We do not recommend you listen to this car in a moving vehicle or listen to this podcast in a moving vehicle. The right of reconciliation, which we will eventually get to in the podcast, is also, part, known, as confession. also known as confession or penitence of a sinner is within the pages of your book of common prayer. It's back there. Um, actually it's, it's, if you want to view it, we're not going to discuss it in full. It's on page 447 in your book of common prayer. It's there for those times when you just can't lay it down. It's there. It's there for those times when you've just got this grief, you've got this pain, you've got this sin that you're carrying around that you just don't seem to be able to accept God's forgiveness for. When when something is overwhelming and getting in the way of you just receiving the blessing of the Eucharist, it's it's also there for when you just have sin in your life and you need to confess it to somebody. It's it's there as a pastoral gift. Now. It's not like Father Joshua and I sit around over a beer and say, I had this confession come in last week. This person with, I, I don't know what they were on about, but they told me about this, that, and the, we don't swap war stories about confessions. No. And half the time, and I have to say this as a confessor, half the time after a confession is over, I don't remember what was even confessed. It's like yeah. this holy amnesia that washes over me. Yeah, and that's um, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit in it. In the moment, we are listening and 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 hearing and engaged, but it really is kind of in one ear and out the other. And we had a phrase for it in in seminary that it's something that is under the stole because we would put on a reconciliation stole at this time, and anything within that bubble of confession within limits. Within, within, limits. That bubble, within that bubble of confession. And we'll get to that more when we get to that section or that episode. Um, but stays there. It doesn't go anywhere else. I, it, I, am, I am forever telling my people, bother your clergy. Bother us. Because that's one of the things that you hear so often as a, as a clergy person in this church. Well, I didn't want to bother you. 
oh my God, bother us, please. And and one of the things that we're here for is this, this spiritual counsel. It is to offer absolution for those sins that are confessed with us with contrition and intent for amendment of life. That's part of our functions as priests. Please and, come and bother us. Yeah. And I love this last portion of the last sentence to the removal of scruple and doubt, the assurance of pardon and the strengthening of your faith. Sometimes you just need to hear God hears you. God is here. God has forgiven you. I don't, I personally, I don't have a need for anybody to come and make a confession to me. That is not something that I need to happen. But there are people who do need to make confession. In the Episcopal Church, the sort of unofficial sort of uh, phrase on this has been all may, some should, and none must. I don't sit around and keep a running tally of who all has made confession to me. But there are times in your life when you just need to have the smallest possible quorum of the church to be present for you to get something off of your chest that you're carrying around so that you can walk around in this world a little bit lighter, knowing that God has forgiven you. And, and can, can you take it to God directly? Absolutely. Of course you can. Absolutely. But as human beings, as as human beings who live in community, we need to hear assurances. Everybody needs to hear, I love you, right? Everybody needs to hear, you are forgiven. And, and, and the other part of all of this is, is understanding that the person who is hearing your confession often makes confession. Is understanding that as we are hearing this, we are also doing this. Yeah. So if if you come to this phrase and you go, I'd really like to talk to somebody about confession, reach out to me and Father Joshua to talk about what confession is like. We probably know something close, know somebody close to where you are that would be willing to hear your confession if that's something you're interested in doing. That's also one of the other services that you get by being a regular subscriber to the BCP and me is that we can help you get connected to churches and communities near you so that you can experience the full rights of the church. So absolutely, don't think we're just a podcast. We'd also like to help you find your way into community. But in any case, moving right along. Here is the last paragraph of an exhortation. To Christ, our Lord, who loves us, and washed us in his own blood, and made us a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father, to him the glory in the church evermore. Through him, let us offer continually the sacrifice of praise, which is our bounden duty and service, and with faith in him, come boldly before the throne of grace, and humbly confess our sins to Almighty God. <laughs> in, in some ways this is just the end the and end I, but, but the end but also it is finished yeah um and i would like to point out that there is a special marking for that last section it does not need to be said and humbly confess our sins to almighty god this is, this is added in the case of, okay, now we're going to make our general confession to God. Correct. 
but it is possible to end this exhortation with, through him, let us offer continually the sacrifice of praise, which is our bounden duty and service, and with faith in him, come boldly before the throne of grace. Full stop. Yeah. So this is this is the conclusion of, of the exhortation. Um, it's, it's a way of, of saying, this is why we're doing this. This is putting a line under everything that was just offered here um, and to point us towards why we're doing it, you know. And because we're not necessarily going to be touching too much on the right one language, um, Father Tyler, what do you take of this, uh, which is our bounden duty and service? It's our obligation. It is, it is what we have signed on for. It is what we have said that we will do, comma, with God's help. Will you continue it's, in the apostles' teaching? in the breaking of bread, and in the prayers. That's this. The bounden duty and service. There's so much more to being a Christian than just showing up to church on Sunday morning. There's so much more to being a part of this faith, which transcends the borders of the Episcopal Church, than just saying you're an Episcopal Christian. Our, our lives as Christians are to continually offer thanks up to God and then to continually offer ourselves into the service of God and to the service of other people. Because all people are members of that royal priesthood. And that's part of respecting the dignity of every human person is understanding that that is their identity. Mm -hmm. um, um, so with, with all of that in mind... And God knows that's a lot to have in mind. It's almost—it's—it's it's fascinating that the framers of the seventy-nine book drop right here, the Decalogue, which is another way of calling it the Ten Commandments. Um, and, and we're going to flip over to page three fifty, um, which is a more contemporary version of it. What is considered contemporary language? So oh, come, oh, come now, Father Joshua. You don't want to hear about how God spake these words and said. Yes, God indeed did spake these words, but. See, this is when I'm, I'm glad we're doing this by Zoom because you can't spit on me. Spake. <laughs> um, so another way of, of saying it is hear the commandments of God to his people. And, and that's a lot Decalogue is just deca, ten, ten. log, words, the, the ten words, the ten commandments. Right. And, and this is here to aid you in your, your examination of conscience. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you shall have no other gods but me. You need to think about what the other priorities are in your life, the things that you give more attention than God, um, things that receive your undue uh, worship in the truest sense of the word worship uh when you place something above above god and above your neighbor um to the detriment of worship and to the detriment of the lives of other people that you interact with think real hard and you can see some examples of that in your headlines right now yeah i'm not ready to preach that sermon again um but all of those things that take precedence in your life over the worship of god 
And there's a particular use of the language here. We're just going to kind of go through them. After each of the lines of the Ten Commandments, we might say, um, the congregation responds, Amen, Lord have mercy. This kind of should remind you of uh, your baptismal covenant of I will with God's help, right? This, I can only do this by the mercy of God. The the rough meaning of the word amen is I agree with this or yes. or it amen. is so. Um, so then the second, you shall not make for yourself any idol. Make here in other places is make unto yourself no graven image. But I think the use of the word, the phrase, you should not make for yourself any idol is more expansive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You shall not invoke with malice the name of the Lord your God. Is that cussing? <laughs> I don't think that's cussing. I hope it's not cussing or I'm in big trouble. Amen. Lord have mercy. Um, but thinking of the way that we use the name, the name of God, thinking of the things that we do in the name of God that cause injury, that cause hurt, um, that cause pain to other people. We are Again, bearers of all you, all you have to do is read your headlines right now and um, as as those who bear the name of Christ, we need to think about how it is that we're bearing that name out into the world. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. We're not just talking about Sunday, folks. God worked for six days and then took a day off. Man, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. Take your time off rest, recuperate. It is a commandment from God that you practice good self-care. Shabbat to make it holy, sanctify it, set it apart. Honor your father and your mother. Do you want to open that can of worms? Remember that you have a father and mother. Remember that you come from someone. Remember that there is a whole lineage and a whole line of people that have brought you to where you are, including your first father and mother, Adam and Eve. Remember that that you are part of a human, a line of human family that extends all the way back to the beginnings of the world. When people encounter this one, what they think they hear is, is that that means that if I have a complicated or a abusive or a downright dysfunctional relationship with mom and dad, God is telling me to get over that and that I should hold my mother and father in special reverence. And just and do not, whatever you think. And, and just do okay. what, and it's often ways that it gets used in abusive situations, especially those situations where there's spiritual abuse involved is that oftentimes an abuser will say, well, God said that you were supposed to honor your father and mother. That doesn't mean your father and mother get to treat you like crap. That doesn't mean that your father and mother get to treat you like a chattel slave. Um, We're called to respect the dignity of every human being. But remember that what this is talking about is remembering where you came from and remembering that whole line of humanity that you are a part of, including your mother's and your mother's mother and your mother's mother's mother. And in how you live, that you bring honor to that lineage. This, Correct. This can mean being the one that breaks the bonds of abuse. Correct. Breaking the generational curses. 
is bringing honor to your father and mother. You shall not commit murder. Please don't unalive people. Please do not do that. Um, I, I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Um, and you can probably expand that out to remember that when you um, when you intentionally inflict harm on the dignity of other people, that's kind of a murder. Um, well, that, as scripture tells us, when you hate your brother, you have killed him. Right. Um, you know, you've contemplated murder in your heart. Um, yeah. Murder in this context is more than just, you know, um, claiming someone's life. It is, it is also the way that you treat that life. It is a disregard and a perversion of your power as a human being to disrupt and to destroy the life of another human being. You shall not commit adultery. Be faithful to those commitments that you have made. Then this is both about a, a spousal commitment and this is also about other commitments that you have made. In the earliest context of the Old Testament, God often tells Israel that they have been adulterous because they have put other things in front of God. It's just a kind of idolatry. Yeah, God um, says, I have, I have been a husband to you. Exactly. And you have broken that covenant. Um, for those of you that, that are listening that, you know, may have um, divorce in your past, I am a divorced person. Um, this isn't so much uh, about, you know, about necessarily being married to a new partner as much as it is about, um, about being faithful. There are all kinds of reasons marriages and domestic violence, infidelity, um, irreconcilable differences, whatever those may be. Be faithful to that which you have pledged yourself to be faithful to, up to and including your marriage vows. Um, that's pretty much all-encompassing here. But, but do not, I mean, again, as breaking those generational curses. Correct. You shall not steal. Don't take those things that don't belong to you, um, including robbing someone of their dignity, including yeah. robbing someone of their livelihood including stealing time at work. Be an ethical person that understands that there is property that belongs to other people um, and there are things that belong to other people. It's not just about, it's not just about, you know, the 20 bucks that I slipped out of Father Joshua's wall at the last time he visited my house. Uh, I'm in, Lord have mercy. I knew, I knew Emery had sticky fingers, but didn't know where she got it from. You shall not be a false witness. Oof. Do not say that you are something that you are not. And, and, and do not say that you know something that you do not. Don't lie. Don't misrepresent yourself. Don't misrepresent. Don't misrepresent yourself to other people in hopes of getting some kind of gain out of that. Yeah. Bearing witness is about being able to give a testimony to or about something. It's not just about lying. It's about the way that you represent your whole self. So keep that in mind. And my favorite, you shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Your neighbor's, neighbor's house, your neighbor's ass. That's 
the expanded version. <laughs> I have no comments on my neighbor's ass, but that's neither here nor there. Um, uh, and, but covet, coveting, coveting is is much deeper than keeping up with the Joneses, right? Or oh, I I really like to have that kind of car that they have. Coveting is wanting them not to have it. Correct. So that you can have it. There's a word for that. It's called the privation of good, which is also the root definition of evil. So, uh, so keep that in mind. And amen. Lord have mercy. Lord have mercy. That takes us through the introduction to the Holy Eucharist. That takes us into what is expected of us as we approach the throne of mercy and the throne of grace. There's more to this rite than just beginning with the proper salutation and going from there. There's a whole host of preparation and a whole host of reverence that should come before we present ourselves to receive Christ in the sacraments. Mm This sets us up perfectly for the beginning of the actual Eucharist itself um, as we talk about the structure of the rite and the different forms that structure can take. Um, But perhaps this will give you a a jumping off point, as it were, to reevaluate the attitudes that you espouse as you come into the naves of your churches, as you prepare to worship God, and the attitude that you bring with you as you prepare to do that worship. This will conclude today's episode. Join us next time as we actually begin the exploration of the rite of Holy Eucharist as we take on the penitential order and how that interfaces with the celebration of the Holy Eucharist. So, Father Joshua, until next time, the peace of the Lord be always with you. And also with you.